Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Topics not covered uh, in, I mean, because we're just so overwhelmed with political coverage right now. Uh, nobody seems to be paying attention to a major hurricane named Epsilon, um, which, by the way, uh, this year's hurricane season has already had so many storms that meteorologists actually ran out of official names, and that's why we're now using the Greek alphabet, if you wondered. If you wondered, if it had occurred to you that, huh, these last few storms have all been named uh, after letters in the Greek alphabet, or actually as letters in the Greek alphabet. Yep, yep, we're up to Epsilon because we ran out of official names. This uh, storm season has been so active. So Hurricane Epsilon is uh, headed for Bermuda, rapidly uh, gaining major hurricane status, expected to skirt east of Bermuda in the coming day. So the National uh, Hurricane Center said that Epsilon uh, is now a Category 3 hurricane, packing, packing sustaining winds of 115 miles an hour. Uh, so um, I don't know that this has any impact on, you know, the, the United States of America. What I think what we just need to constantly be mindful of is storms rage. <laughs> storms rage. Uh, and some of them are literally off of our radar and some of them are on our radar. Uh, I, I, you know, I the headline about the Swedish missionaries um gravestones being bulldozed and the place where you might, you know, visit a a center where they might, uh, their names and photographs would be uh, displayed and you might honor the fact that God sent forth the gospel to China through Swedish missionaries more than 100 years ago. Um, That's going to be off the radar of pretty much every media outlet you listen to today. And so I want you to be mindful of that. Storms rage around the world. The Uyghur people are being uh, subjected to a, a, a genocide uh, by the nation of China. Um, Uyghur children are now being forcibly separated from their parents and moved to quote unquote boarding schools, um, which is just another version of a, a re-education or concentration camp. Th- those stories are off the radar of most of the of most of the media you're going to be hearing because we are so consumed with our own political process. And so I just want you to be mindful today of the scope of human history. The acknowledgement that God is sovereign over all of it, that he has the whole world in his hands. And yes, he is interested in what happens in the U.S. political process, but he's not more interested in that than he is interested in the plight of a person who uh, who cannot find nor access food, water, nor medical care for their child as they are fleeing um, war in some part of the world, the name of which we can't pronounce. Places that we will never visit and we will never see are deep in the heart of God. We worship a God who sees all and knows all and who is is as concerned today about the person fleeing violence um, in a place we will never visit as he is concerned about the political process in the United States of America. So let's just be mindful of that today. 
as um, as we tend to stories that leap to the forefront of the headlines here in America. All right. One of the things that you uh, need to know about the, the final presidential debate tonight um, is that there's going to be a mic mute button. We have a mic mute button here and we use it a lot. So, Paul, get your hand on the mic mute button because Peter Kapsner is up next. Oh, we'll I'm, right I'm ready. I'm ready. Yeah, we'll be right back. Dr. Peter Kapsner, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. We have a mic mute button, and we're not afraid to use it. <laughs> I say, I'm still chuckling over that one from a minute ago. I got to tell you, Carmen, that was that was pretty solid. <laughs> I feel like I feel like the uh, the Commission on Presidential Debates has nothing on us. No, no, I. Yeah. I I, if Paul Perot does not have mic buttons uh, all around that studio right now that he can mute, I think that would be problematic. Yeah, I, I actually have a mic mute button right here next to me so I can mute myself from time to time. It's, a, <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's not a, a bad move. As much as you not, talk, uh, you know, it's 10 hours a week on air like this, five shows and stuff. There, there's got to be moments where it's probably best to just shut it down, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't want to talk over people, but sometimes I have things to say. And so you just mute myself and just talk to myself. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. That's great. Um, okay. <laughs> so, um, all right. I want to talk about a story that, you know, nobody else is going to be talking about. So um, this is, I'm going to, my lead to this is going to be life is complicated. Bad, mm. really bad things happen. Um, horrible things happen. Pain is real. But forgiveness is possible. So um, let's just uh, brief people in on what happened uh, in this uh, in this neighborhood between these neighbors. And then it's just it's so redemptive. So you want to uh, you want to yeah. tell people the story? We both read it at people dot com. Yeah, it, it, that was a story, Carmen, that I, I admit caught me up short. I mean, it really did. I, I nearly was moved to tears by what I read. I, I wasn't anticipating what I was about to read when we were kind of going through some of the, the news like that and and just saw the headline about the idea of forgiveness. And then to dive into that story a bit, to see neighbors that obviously would know one another, about neighbors that I uh, am around even here this morning and, and neighbors that are becoming increasingly really good friends and they have children and, and how life can change in just the absolute blink of an eye, where as the story goes, um, one of the neighbors, uh, he he kissed his wife goodbye at about 530 in the morning as she went out for her normal walk and got uh, just a horrific phone call within just a few minutes where uh, his next door neighbor had been out driving and was reaching down to plug in his phone to get it charging on, on his commute or wherever he was headed. Like we've all reaching- done. Yeah, of course. That's and that's part of what caught me up short, Carmen. It's like what we've all done, and sort of a, a seemingly inconspicuous move. And 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 in that move, he temporarily swerved as he was plugging in his phone, and and he hit his uh, his friend's wife, and uh, and she died. And that's I just thought, oh my gosh, that that so caught me up short. And um, one of them, I believe, has three children, and the other has four children. And uh, and I just thought how everything changed in the blink of an eye. And now this man is suddenly faced with the idea of being a widower as he ran to the scene and he finds his wife. And, and he says in the story that he knew his wife wasn't going to make it. And he was thinking about his children that are just safely tucked in bed that morning. 
And the story goes from there. Maybe you can tell some of the rest of the story. But that, there was so much of it that caught me up short uh, in terms of how then this new widower uh, began to approach the situation with his friend. Yeah. So he turns essentially to his neighbor who who recognizes that he has just hit and killed um, this woman, this 40 year old uh, you know, mother. And um, uh, it it's incredible that the response of the new widower is to look at the person who is responsible for having taken her life and yeah. extent. I mean, recognizing the situation that his neighbor is in like he recognizes how tortured his neighbor already is and um and the situation in his own family he recognizes that his neighbor has been facing these really significant challenges at home his wife suffers from a debilitating respiratory condition they lost a child uh in 2014 to a degenerative disorder and they just found out that two of their other children now have that same disorder and so these are men who are, who are, you know, hus- their husbands, their dads, they're hardworking guys, um, and they happen to live on the same street. And, um, and what happens is that the man whose wife was killed forgives. He forgives. Uh, it, it stunning. The, I stunning. mean, like, and, and it has obviously, you know, this is a, a tragic situation that has ongoing consequences. Like, we recognize that. But if we want a modern day parable about what it means to be neighbor and what it means to be a person who understands um, that those who are forgiven must extend forgiveness to others in order in order that we could have a life um, that's worthy of living and a life that we can live alongside our neighbor. Like these people now don't have to move away from each other. They actually can move toward one another um, because now they all got to raise their kids together. That's that's so it, Carmen. And that, that I think the understandable knee jerk reaction, right, because the, the neighbor was facing some jail time, obviously, the person who uh, could have been convicted of vehicular uh, manslaughter and uh, substantial fines and, and all of what justifiably should and could have been coming in his direction. And the new widower has said exactly what you just said. He said, no, I, I don't wish any jail time, any fines, anything like that. He has his own children to raise right now, too. I don't want to take him away from them. And and boy, when an understandable reaction is uh, my wife, uh, the, the children's mother was just taken from us uh, for, for them to have an eye for an eye sort of mentality would have been somewhat understandable to say. So they need to experience some of the suffering and the pain as well. And and that human condition, Carmen, however understandable it might be, and it, and it really is, I can sympathize with that idea still is not the kind of posture. It's not the kind of act. It's not the kind of heart that we're called to have for one another, which is a heart that um, when we have been persecuted, we, we turn and pray for uh, that person. When we have been cursed, we are called to bless. When, when we have an enemy, we are called to desire their goodwill or, or to love them, to use the language of scriptures, to desire their shalom, even ahead of our own. And, and if we're going to claim to be followers of Jesus and, and to pick up our cross in this world that is so broken and distorted and filled with suffering, 
that's the language of the kingdom. And, and I don't know how you can inhabit the kingdom with that kind of language characterizing your life, unless there's another power at work in your life that enables you to do those sorts of things, to to push through the, the knee-jerk reactions and to say, but what would bring wholeness? What would bring peace? What would bring shalom and, and, and a sense of well-being into the future? And and that is where the language of the kingdom of forgiveness and love and redemption, it, it doesn't, we're not saying that it just means get run over and people aren't held accountable and there aren't implications for actions. It just means the posture of peace that we have towards one another in the midst of the pain and the suffering, uh, that, that's an otherworldly thing that we certainly don't see a lot in the world around us. But when you look at the life of Jesus and he walked it out to the cross, when 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 he is hanging on that cross, I, I, I'm not going to claim to get to know what, you know, or to, to know what was in his psyche and in his mind emotions at that time. But but something within him called forth the goodwill of another person, even as he is experiencing the worst form of injustice hanging on that cross. And he turns to the very perpetrators of his suffering. And what does he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And mm-hmm. and, and if we can't move in that direction, uh, I'm afraid that as Christians, we're going to get swept up in sort of this uh, this constant antagonism that we see and that you reference, not just in our own country, but in the world around us. And, and we're just, we're called to a different way of life. And I think that's why this story catches me up short because it's such a vision of a parable of the kind of life we're, we're meant to live. Absolutely. All right. We want you uh, to check it out if you want to at people.com. His wife was killed by a distracted driver and he honored her memory by forgiving the man who hit her. It's just it's just an astonishing story. Oh, it really uh, is. The names you're the names you're looking for are Lincoln Lear and Curtis Nielsen. All right, Peter Capster and I will be right back. I am All right, I'm talking with Dr. Peter Capster and I'm going to tee up a conversation about whether or not nations have souls. We're going to talk about the nature of the soul, whether or not a nation has a soul, if so, what kind of soul our nation has. Both president, both uh, candidates for the presidency are arguing that this election is a battle for the soul, and both claim to be able to save the soul of the nation, um, or that the soul will be lost if the other side is elected. So let's talk about uh, let's talk about the soul, Peter. Just yeah, <laughs> yeah like right when I read. Language that comes out of absolutely theological categories, and I read it in the secular press, I, I say to myself, they they mean something by the use of this term. The reader understands something by the use of this term that may be very different um, than the secular category being used in the press. So let's just talk about the soul. Yeah, gosh, it is interesting, isn't it? Because it's a very evocative uh, set of phrases when you when you say what you say about we're fighting for the soul or we're going to lose the soul of the nation. And it, and I think probably right what is meant by that is the is the very animating set of principles or ideas or forces that then drive the physical expression of something would would be reference to the soul. And so. You know, from from a nation standpoint, there is obviously a, a pretty significant disagreement about whether uh, the soul of America is sort of a legitimate soul, I suppose, meaning the animating ideas uh, of an individualism, of a of a sense of a life that can be led in, in relative freedom, not completely independent of the, the original forefathers never meant for a complete independence of uh, from one another, but sort of the idea of a, of a freedom and an autonomy of the individual 
as more important and superseding that of government control. And, and so that would be the soul of the nation, would be the animating force is sort of that individual autonomy. And on the flip side, some people would argue that that uh, what the Democratic Party is trying to do is shift that soul to more of maybe a governmental oversight. And, and I'm not here to get into the arguments about whether that's a fair characterization or not um, and, and who should win the soul of the nation. But it is interesting to take that kind of language because in, in the scriptures, the soul is actually a, a fairly surprisingly complex uh, idea that that even scriptural authors seem to wrestle with, and and some of the philosophers and, and early theologians of the church kind of they, they I don't want to say they evolved, but they expanded in their thinking about what was the soul, and uh, certainly among the ancient Hebrews, the soul and the body was uh, in, uh, intimately interconnected and interwoven, meaning that. The soul was that that driving, hidden, uh, sort of immortal, immaterial force that then played itself out in our physical bodies. And and more recently, I think we we see the soul as entirely distinct from the body, meaning that our body is going to die and our soul is going to carry on. Our soul is that which is lasting and permanent and durable. Uh, it 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 needs a new housing, so to speak. So our bodies are going to die in this world, but will be raised imperishable with a new body. And certainly Jesus gives us a, a wonderful glimpse of the first fruits of the new kind of body that we can expect to experience when he raised from the dead and, and inhabited his body in that visible way for that very short period of time post-resurrection. So I do think there's a, there's a shared idea there, but, but I think the idea that a nation would have a soul that is somehow immortal and carries on and, uh, and doesn't shift and evolve and change. I mean, that that's where it gets a little dodgy for me, Carmen, because I, I really, I do love our country. And, and as somebody who's lived overseas in other countries, there's other countries that I have loved as well. I really appreciate them. But you're always holding the tension to say, but nations do rise and fall and, and lines on the map do change. And, and if I was to look back at my geography textbook in the 1980s and, and, um, tried to do the same quiz, per se, on global geography in 2020, there are many wrong answers I would get because simply the lines in the map and the names for those lines on the map have changed substantially. And so I think we need to be talking about fighting for the soul of one another that doesn't change. You know, you and I and Paul and all of our listeners, we, we bear the image and the stamp of, of an immortal God and, and eternity has been placed in our hearts. And if we're going to fight for the soul of something, I do care about what happens in our country. I really, truly do. But I hope that it could be said of me that I care more about what happens uh, for you and for me and for the listeners and for the people around us and our neighbors and, and even the story we just referenced before the break. Uh, that's the kind of stuff that's durable, lasting. And, and when we talk about God's sovereignty, what that means, among many other things, is that his kingdom will remain forever and ever and ever and ever. And there's nothing on this earth that can ever change that or touch that. And it is the only kingdom that is sovereign in that way. So let's fight for each other's souls uh, in, in those places is what I'd suggest. So if you're looking for, you know, somebody to just lift up today uh, in your prayers in relationship to the coverage of the headlines of the day, the, the New York Times um, journalist who um, who wrote this piece, um, her name is Elizabeth Dias, and she covers faith and politics for the New York Times from the D.C. Bureau. Um, she has previously uh, done so for time. Um, Elizabeth has a uh, an undergraduate degree in theology from Wheaton, and she has a Master's of Divinity degree from Princeton Theological Seminary. She's no theological slouch. And Not so when she when she writes a sentence and provokes questions, 
in the New York Times like this, what exactly is the soul of a nation? What is the state of it? And what would it mean to save it? She is asking theological questions in front of a very secular audience and doing so from a very secular platform. So um, let's just be you know, recognizing that there are people in journalism today who are um, helping uh, draw back the curtain on the conversations of faith. And let's be sure that we're praying for them uh, each and every day as they approach their very important work as well. Uh, Peter, that's all we got time for today. Thank you, as always, for joining us. It's a uh, it's a pleasure. We're now going to mute your mic. <laughs> you know, and justifiably. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's it. All right, we'll be right back. Just yesterday, we talked with Walter Strickland, and one of the things that I asked him about was uh, in his bio. You know, he he says, you know, he's the father of four, three at home and one in heaven. Um, that conversation about the loss of a child, in, in their case, a child who um, was ultimately stillborn, is a conversation that um, we all can have. And we all um, know women who have miscarried uh, pregnancies, <clears throat> and we all know people who have lost children early in life. Um, and so this conversation about holding on to love after you've lost a baby with Candy McVicker that we're about to have is about applying the five love languages in the context of the grief over the loss of a child, uh, specifically the loss of a baby. How do you grieve the loss? How do you love your mate well in the midst of it? Um, how do you help others in, in those circles of grief that surround that family? Um, all of that up next. Candy McVicker is joining me. We're going to talk about holding on to love after you've lost a baby. This is Max Locato. On April 21st, 2008, Catherine Wolfe suffered a massive stroke. She lost her ability to walk, talk clearly, and care for herself. She went from being a California model to a wheelchair-bound patient. God stepped in. In her wonderful book, Hope Heals, she writes... I felt a deep awakening of the Word of God, which I had known since I was a little girl. It was my epiphany of hope. I would never lose heart in this situation because my soul was not what was wasting away. Don't try to weather this storm alone, my friend. He is still the great I am. The next time you pray, is anyone coming to help me? Listen for the response of Jesus. I am with you in this storm. Remember, my friend, you are never alone. This is Max Locato. Joining me now, Candy McVicker. Uh, today she's joining me as the co-author of Holding On to Love After You've Lost a Baby. Her co-author is Gary Chapman, um, whose name you very likely recognize. Uh, Candy um, has a significant ministry and following um, in, in her own right, and I want to uh, direct you to her ministry website as well. She is the director of Missing Grace Foundation. And um, Candy, tell us uh, the easiest place to find the Missing Grace Foundation online. 
Hey, Carmen, it would be great if people could visit us at missinggracegrace.org. And um, yeah, we, we would love to talk to you guys and connect with you if you want to reach out. So the topic that you um, address in this book is not only something that is just shared by millions and millions of people, um, it is your own story as well. So let's mm-hmm. start there. Um, you have some authority to speak on the topic of uh, of holding on to love after you've lost a baby. Um, if you're willing, tell us your story. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, I always say if we can speak their name, um, we can begin to heal. So um, I I was a first-time mom with my my daughter, Grace, is the one who made me a mom. And um, it was shortly after getting married, we got pregnant. We were astounded because we thought it might take a while. Uh, we had a difficult pregnancy. And in the last few weeks of her pregnancy, she just really didn't move very much. So I went in seven times and asked for an ultrasound, which was denied every visit. They said I was a worried first-time mom, and it was not a big deal. Baby slowed down. And they said I was fine, and they would check if there were fetal heart tones with a Doppler. And then on the final visit, on the seventh visit, they finally said, all right, well, we'll let you go get that ultrasound. Uh, Unbeknownst to me, they already were aware that her heart had stopped beating. And so at the ultrasound, my husband and I were given the terrible... Um, life-altering news for us that there was no more heartbeat and we had to go to the hospital the next morning and went through 24 hours of labor and delivered a very healthy beautiful perfect girl but she had an umbilical cord issue and uh, uh, for her life-saving measures would have meant um, an early delivery via c-section and so uh, we lost grace and that was december 20 2001 We buried her on the 27th, and my birthday is the 29th. It was a really rough December. And and then grief just hit and parked its heavy load on my heart and my brain. And um, I I never had encountered such despair. And, um, you know, it was a rude awakening to something because I'd never gone through loss like that before um, with a baby. And so that's the beginning of our story. And for me, my my way to survive and thrive was through getting myself educated on the subject and helping others and where I could comfort and support others and where I could save lives if possible. That was very helpful for me in my healing process. So as you're listening um, to Candy share her story, uh, let me just invite you to uh, consider um, reaching out for this book, Holding on to love after you've lost a baby. I do have copies uh, here that we're going to give away. So if this is your issue, if this is your need, if this is your grief, um, then this is your book. And all you have to do is text the word book to 877-933-2484. Candy, we literally just talked yesterday with um, a theologian uh, who serves at at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. His name's Walter Strickland. Mm. And um, and he part of his bio is that he's the father of four, three mm. uh, at home and one in heaven. And mm. I, I asked him about that. I did not know that um, that they had uh, lost their first child in the first year of their marriage. Um, wow. And so anyway, this is a journey that Christians. Well, this is a journey that millions of people are walking. This is a journey mm-hmm. that Christians are walking differently. And mm-hmm. um, we do grieve. It's real. The loss is mm-hmm. real. 
the person is real. Um, And so talk about a little bit about grief. And that's really what the book is about. Uh, If you're wondering right now, what is this book, Holding On to Love After You've Lost a Baby? What is it about? It's about walking into and through the grief process, Mm -hmm. loving your mate, loving your spouse well in the midst of all of that. Um, And how do those of us who might be one person removed from the experience, um, how do we allow for and um, and help the grief process along um, really without getting in the way um, or short circuiting Mm -hmm. it? So um, so just talk with us around some of the topics that are covered in the book, really, because it's it is you sharing what not only your experience has been, but what the experience of so many others has been in this process. Well, I had a lot of really hard things in my story. The the medical care, the mistakes made, different things, they were very hard. And sadly, that's something I encounter a lot when people share and write to me their stories. So we, we hear that from thousands of people and they have added sting to their situation because it was also um, handled not well or they had limited resources or they felt people were very distant or or weren't willing to process or help them, um, including the spouse. And that's one of the biggest things is male and female. We we process things differently and overall uh, we uh, tend to grieve differently. And so that's very painful for um, a couple as they start to think we're maybe we don't love each other. Maybe we're not on the same page and maybe you didn't care about this baby as much as I cared about this baby or this child. And um, and that's where the love languages for me was very instrumental when I found out about it and I began to apply it in my marriage. Um, in the midst of our grief journey, it was a real game changer for us because we needed some added tools in our resource kit for how to survive marriage after loss. And this was really instrumental for us. So we talk about how that affected our journey and how that grew us as a couple and and kind of oiled the areas that were rubbed raw from grief. And, um, and then we talk about, um, you know, our, our just our story, the process, what we went through, how we healed, um, but also how do other people rate others' grief? We tend to look at each other and say, well, your grief really doesn't um, need much time to process because it was so early or it was you're young and you're going to have more, so it's fine. It was a blip on the screen. And so we minimize and we take away the right for others to grieve. We say, you don't get to grieve the way you need to or want to because it's making me uncomfortable and I don't like it. So stop it. And and so people get very um, offended, hurt, isolated, and they withdraw and many different, different um, kind of coping methods will come uh, about because of that, because of the pain and the hurt. So we address those things. We talk about how we love our family members well in the journey, including our other living children, if you have them. And also family members who are, you know, grandparents, they're struggling too. They lost a grandchild. 
And so we're, we're really going through all of the different things that affect grief. And the journey is not linear. It is not something you can say, when does it get over? When can I be done feeling like this? When do I get to, you know, be back on track? Because you can do amazingly well for quite some time. And then you hit something in the timeline of life that you never anticipated having to be a difficult uh, cross section for you. For example, somebody going to um, their friend's wedding and, and it dawning on them, their child would be that same age and getting married too, and that they didn't get to have a wedding with their kid. And all of a sudden they can be a mess on that wedding day. Um, and they were fine for all those years. And so you can't expect when it'll creep up on you. But what we do talk about is if you don't deal with grief, grief will deal with you. Like it will, it just comes at you and it's very, very hard actually even worse to ignore it or try to pretend it didn't happen. It is far better for people to address it, to get help, to get counseling, to get prayer ministry, to to do different things that are going to be healing. And we list all that out. And that's going to help you be a stronger person in the long haul and just an overall more holistically better um, better off because you're, you need to actually address mind, body, spirit. You have to address all of it, you're, you're, um, all of those things, and you can't just um, address just one of them. I am talking with Candy McVicker. We are talking about holding on to love after you've lost a baby. I do have complimentary copies here if... Um, if this is your concern, um, this is your grief, and you would like to be equipped in the midst of it, uh, please text the word book to 877-933-2484. Candy and I will be right back. Nothing can prepare a parent for the death of a child. Um, and every story is uh, is not our story. It's not even shared in the same way. It's certainly not experienced in the same way. The grief is real, um, and it's unique to absolutely every single circumstance because the person who has died is utterly unique in all creation. And so we wanna um, we wanna understand not only the experience of the individual. We also wanna. Um, walk well in grief, and we want to walk well with those who are grieving. Helping us do that, Candy McVicker, along with Gary Chapman, uh, have given us this book, Holding On to Love After You've Lost a Baby. Um, Candy, we talk about implementing the five love languages. That's actually, you know, just really, uh, I think, uh, the maybe the portion of this book that, you know, kind of sings, because it's not necessarily the way we have thought about walking in grief. Um, or or walking with grief with a spouse or walking with grief with our other children. So talk a little bit about that um, uh, and go down any one of those trails you want to go down um, because they're they're each unique and important. Sure. Well, the five love languages, we um, we tend to love people the way we want to be loved. And so we naturally just give out all this love in that particular way. And for example, one way would be acts of service, which is one of my top love languages. And I want to serve you. I want to see what makes you comfortable, what makes you happy, what makes you feel good, um, what takes uh, some burden off of you. And I will do everything I can to try to serve you well. 
And if your love language is uh, words of affirmation, like my husband's, um, you need to hear things like, um, I value you, I appreciate you, I, I think you're amazing, and I, I just appreciate your contribution, or you're beautiful. And you're going to feel your love tank fill up, and you're going to feel good if you know, I'm saying things to you authentically. It, it, it doesn't mean beans if, if I'm just giving you lip service. But if I actually mean it and I'm saying it to you, that fills you up. And you would give love that way. You would try to love me. You might write me letters. You might text me and say, I'm thinking about you today. I really care about you. You know, you've got this girl. And so this would be a way with a, an example of love languages working. And so no matter how much I serve you and try to do all these nice things, you might not really receive my message of love as well because you're you're needing it and wanting it in a different way. You still think it's nice and it's you, you certainly think, great job, Candy, good job. That's really nice of you to serve me but you really needed to hear words. So in my marriage, my husband was trying his best to just love me. I'm proud of you, you're a great mom and we're going to get through this and 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 he and and it was not meeting my need. And and I was doing all these things that I could to try to love him and it wasn't meeting his need. And when you're already misunderstanding each other in the grief journey, I needed to talk and process a lot and he needed to try to just survive and a lot of words scared him because he couldn't fix it. He couldn't make it go away. He couldn't make it better. He couldn't bring grace back. And so um, he felt very helpless and uh, a lot of guys do. And so for him to feel like, oh, wait a minute, there's a way I can love you and, you and it'll resonate with your heart, even as a grieving mother heart. And it's really going to even mean that much more to you. And and so when he would talk about Grace and mention her name, I, 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 I was, you know, so thankful. And then he would serve me by doing things with me for Grace to honor her memory. And that really meant a lot to me. And um, I had to then figure out how to say things better and and word things you know maybe i was too short before maybe i i just didn't um you know acknowledge the 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 need in him for that and and so a little by little we started to tweak the way we communicated with the love, love languages implemented loving the other the way they longed to be loved and it was so helpful like we just saw our our joy come back on we saw our love get more infused and and we we really began to um, just appreciate each other again. And it was so special because, you know, you're hurting so deeply when you lose a child. And he was hurting deeply too. I just didn't understand his way of how he expressed his hurt. And so we have an awesome marriage. We've been married 21 years. We uh, love each other so much. He's my best friend. And thank God we had the, the five love languages really was so helpful for us to work through that. So it, it really does help. And there's many books Dr. Chapman has out there for every kind of thing, for single people, for, um, you know, teenagers, for children. Um, it, it's applicable to anybody, no matter what age, race, religion. It doesn't, it transcends all. His books are written in over 50 languages. Um, and so uh, it's, it's really just a new way to think about love and, and to apply it. And it's... Um... It's awesome that you honor him in that way, but the reality is he could not have written this book, right? And so that's why we're talking, I mean, like, right? It's, I mean, we love Gary Chapman, yeah, and, right, but right, he right. could not have written this book because this is a book that is, that uniquely comes out of um, 
your your life experience, but also your ongoing ministry to so many others. So I want people to um, know that you can connect with Candy at missinggrace.org. Um, that's her ministry website. The book is Holding On to Love After You've Lost a Baby. She is the co-author along with Gary Chapman. I do have copies. Uh, and if you are interested in entering the drawing for those, uh, go ahead and text the word book to 877-933-2484. Um, Candy, thank you uh, so very much for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. Oh, such a blessing. Thanks for the opportunity and loved reaching your audience. I hope we'll be able to connect with them soon. And we'll be back on a, on a future date and talk again. I love that. I love that. Thanks All so right. much. Thank All right, you. Friends, we'll be right back. Take Absolutely. care. You too. Wow, so many things that uh, we could be talking about today. Let us be sure that we're talking to the one who can make a difference in each and every one of those situations. So in much the same way that I encourage us every day to be in the Word of God before we march ourselves out there into the world that he so loves, let us also be a people of prayer before we are a people of sort of prattling conversation. Uh, So let me invite you to speak first to and with the Lord our God. Spend some time in prayer today before you seek to enter into conversations with others. Um, And again, spend time in the Word of God before you go out there into the world that God so loves. God loves you more intimately and more deeply than you have dared to yet imagine. And so if you would turn to Him, even if you are in the midst of great grief or questioning or desperation, Turn toward God. Um, He is very near to the brokenhearted, and he sees you right now, and he'd love to talk with you. Spend some time in prayer with God today. Draw near to him, and trust me, he will draw near to you. To get today's podcast, go to MyFaithRadio.com. Have a great day, and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.